Have you ever felt that you've missed certain opportunities only to watch them go by? Oftentimes life is full of missed opportunities. Um, and I'm always thankful when uh, you, know, you, you see the opportunity in advance. Sometimes you realize only after the fact what kind of an opportunity you were missing. In this chapter, we're gonna have six opportunities that Jesus is gonna give for people to have belief or to not, to do great things or not, to be saved or not to be saved. All kinds of opportunities Jesus is gonna put before the people that are in this story. And uh, so let's take a look at these uh, opportunities. The first opportunity that's here in our text in Mark chapter six is right there in the first six verses. Um, and um, one of the things that we're gonna see in this, um, the unbelief is there's um, three different groups, uh, kind of a separate sideline uh, outline of this chapter, if you want, is the, the, the different cases of unbelief in chapter six. In a few chapters, we're gonna have a guy who's gonna say, oh Lord, help my unbelief. Do you ever feel that? Lord, would you just help me out here? And, and if you remember, uh, we have the remedy that the Bible gives to us. We talked about Sunday. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That's what helps unbelief. Um, the word of God. And, and that's what Jesus is doing. When Jesus comes and speaks to these people, uh, there should be an imparting of faith. But it's interesting because not everybody chooses to believe. Um, it's an interesting dynamic we're gonna see in this chapter. The three cases of unbelief, we'll just kind of give you a quick uh, outline of this as sort of a sideline before we dive in. But um, the three cases is we're gonna see unbelief that's found in Jesus's acquaintances, verses one through six. His family members, his friends, the locals of Nazareth. And we looked at that on Sunday, they were unbelieving because they were close acquaintances. Remember we talked about familiarity on Sunday and that was what breeds contempt. And they, they would not have Jesus do good things. There was nothing done in Nazareth because of their unbelief. The second is we're gonna see unbelief in the enemies. It's gonna be found in Jesus's enemies. They won't believe that he is who he claims to be. And we'll see that in verses seven through 29. And then also we're gonna see unbelief in Jesus's disciples of all people. Uh, that's in verses 30 through 56. Um, but good news for the disciples, even though there's unbelief found in them, we know they're sort of disciples in training. And so if you have times where you are unbelieving, don't, don't feel bad, uh, just you gotta fix the problem. The disciples, if they were unbelieving and they had Jesus teaching them right then and there, uh, do you think we're gonna struggle a little bit from time to time too? Uh, yes, I think that's gonna be a normal thing. Humanity, we're just, our flesh, our sin nature wants to not believe. Um, but the more you hang out with Jesus, the more you take in of his word, you're gonna find that faith will come. Um, so, um, you know, uh, it's, it's an interesting thing to sort of test your faith. Uh, and, and having faith is, is something that uh, I think sometimes it only requires some of the more pinnacle moments of your life to reveal if you really do have true belief and, and true faith. Um, I remember hearing the story of a college student. The professor's assignment was to, you know, be create, have, be a, have a creative lesson, um, and, it, and it had to be sort of an intellectual instruction. But um, but the, the assignment was to make sure and drive your point home uh, in a very memorable way. Well, this this student got up to do his presentation, and he started with a, a little string tied to the ceiling of the classroom and a piece of chalk, 
uh, and he just started swinging it like a pendulum, you know, and, and he would let it swing and, and then he'd mark where the, where the chalk would swing. And, you know, when you let go here, how far over here did it go? And it would never have the energy. And he was talking about the law of the pendulum, you know, and just carefully teaching. But uh, the professor was getting a little perturbed because it was kind of boring, just kind of the math of the law of the pendulum and all that stuff. And, um, and, uh, but he just kept going. And he, um, finally, he attached a, 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 the string, a, three, a child's toy and started swinging the child's toy. And he's like, oh, brother, you know, this, this guy's gonna flunk. Well, by the end of his lesson, talking about the math and, the, and all that, um, nobody noticed, but in the back of the room, there was a big steel beam uh, on the, on the, on the um, you know, the roof, kind of a big, you know, uh, uh, beam that could hold some weight. And he also had there a, a heavy chain uh, that was tied to the beam and it hung down. And, he, and he, while he was talking, one of his co-buddies, you know, were, was loading up the chain with 250 pounds of, of weights from the weight room. Uh, you know, big slabs of weight uh, on the chain hanging from the ceiling. And then um, he said, um, I'm gonna volunteer the professor. Would you please come and assist me? And he had the professor stand up against the wall. And, uh, and then he, he and a couple friends pushed the 250 pound weights up against, the, right up to right, touch his nose, just barely. And he said, now we've studied the laws of the pendulum. If you were listening to my dissertation, you will know that if we let go of this weight, it'll swing across the room with great speed and force. And then it'll come back the other way and it'll swing up. But we know the law of the, we've gone over the math. There's no way that's gonna swing. You know, we know this scientifically. Do you guys trust science? He said, professor, do you believe in science? And, and you know, uh, he, he said, well, you have to, of course, you know. And he said, okay, well then here we go, bombs away. And, and he let go of the weight and whoo, through the backside of the room, it swung up. And as it came back, the, the professor just waited a second but finally just screamed like a little girl and ran for his life. And, um, and he looked at the class, the, the young student looked at the class, does our professor believe in the law of the pendulum? And the student said, no. <laughs> uh, and he got an A uh, for, for, uh, uh, for convincing uh, with, with drama and all that stuff. But, but um, what are those moments in your life where the rubber meets the road in faith, where you're just gonna have to believe that, that the Lord is true and his word is true. And there's moments where you're either gonna scream and run uh, and freak out, or you're gonna just truly be that of faith, having faith. Um, you know, there's, there's people in history, you know, in the Bible, there's Stephen in the book of Acts who gave that great powerful sermon, knowing that those guys were gonna kill him. They gnashed their teeth at him and they were like wanting to kill Stephen, but he preached this powerful sermon and they stoned him to death that day. We have modern day, you know, the Cassie Bernals of the Columbine shooting, you know, asked if she believes in God. And if you say, yes, you know, you're, you're pulling the trigger and she declared her faith in Christ and was killed there. And she shouldn't be a forgotten Christian martyr of the modern days, but there's a lot of people who've stood for faith. And, and, were, and when it came down to it, they were willing to risk their lives and trust the Lord. Um, and really death is probably the biggest one, trusting the Lord in death, that there's life after death and that you're going to heaven. That's the big pendulum swing. Are you gonna stand and trust that the Lord knows what he's talking about, that there's life after death? that heaven's coming for the Christian who accepts Christ, repents of their sins. Um, this is where faith really uh, comes, becomes very real. It's so easy to sit in a sanctuary like this and pontificate about spiritual matters and uh, you know, talk about things. Oh yeah, 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 we believe in all that stuff. But it's, it's, it's in life when you really do face those challenges. We, we're gonna see several of those here in this chapter 
uh, sort of reveals of faith or no faith. So let's take a look. Uh, let's review verses one through six we looked at on Sunday. It says in verse one, he went out from thence, came into his own country and his disciples followed him. Uh, and when the Sabbath day uh, was come, he began to teach in the synagogue and many hearing him were astonished. Remember, that's that word that is much worse than astonished. Uh, that, you know, this is a very negative, sort of angry sort of term saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him that even such um, uh, mighty works are wrought by his hands? They're, they're acknowledging that he's done miracles. You think that would, do, do miracles ever really produce faith? The answer is no, no, and no, all throughout the Bible. You'd think the children of Israel would believe after the parting of the Red Sea, oh, they're gonna have faith for this. Don't you think the Red Sea parting's enough for one lifetime to say, yeah, we're gonna pretty much believe God from this point on. 10 minutes after the closing of the water, they're like, oh, you brought us out here to die in the wilderness, Moses. And they're, they're like, where'd their faith go? It, it didn't last because faith does not come by the parting of the Red Sea. It comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. I'm, I'm hitting that point home over and over again because uh, a lot of churches that are, I think, you know, Holy Spirit, Pentecostal, a little bit, you know, uh, some of our charismaniac friends, uh, they love Jesus, but they're also a little bit wild on the, on the Holy Spirit stuff. Don't get me wrong. I believe in healing, speaking in tongues, manifestation of the Spirit. But there's some churches that they move from being solid to where they start chasing after signs and wonders. And they wanna see the miracles and the Holy Spirit stuff. And um, you know, the Bible says, Mark's gospel says, signs and wonders will follow them that believe. Not believers are supposed to follow after signs and wonders. It's such a, a, a fallacy to follow after signs and wonders because it doesn't really produce real faith. Um, actually, faith comes by true hearing and hearing by the word of God. So we see right here, these people, They've seen the miracles. They even say, we, where does he get the power to do these works of his, these mighty works, they even say, wrought in his hands. Verse three, is not this the carpenter, son of Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judah, and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended. Remember, scandalizo is the Greek word, scandalized at him. But Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, but in his own country, and among his own kin, and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands on a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and went round about the villages teaching. Um, interesting, Jesus marvels at two things. Uh, the first thing he marvels at is uh, the, the faith of a Gentile. And he says, oh, not so great a faith in all of Israel have I seen as this person, this Gentile. That's the first marvel Jesus does. This is the second marveling where this, these people have no faith. Um, so we saw that on Sunday uh, on the weekend services. We called it nothing in Nazareth. I, I decided not to call it nincompoops from Nazareth. I uh, thought it might be um, not very nice. But, um, but they really did reject Jesus. And we saw that. Um, and by the way, Jesus, one of the things that we, when we see Jesus being rejected, especially by the Jews, and his own people, it's really just a continuation of what happened in the Old Testament when they rejected the prophets. In fact, in the New Testament, 
um, often the Lord reminds the Jews, you rejected and despised the prophets. Remember when there in Luke, uh, when uh, the rich man and Lazarus went into Hades, uh, paradise and, and Hades, and, and the, the rich man goes into the hot side and, and the rich man, or the Lazarus, the beggars on the, on the paradise side. And he says, oh, please go and tell my brothers. You know, he says, and, and Abraham says, what? You think your brothers, your brothers, you and your brothers have rejected all the prophets of the Old Testament. And you think they're gonna believe now? Like that's the, that's the nuance in the New Testament. Um, the Jews are blinded to the truth and they rejected the prophets and they rejected Jesus Christ. But don't be goofed uh, with the, some of the theology of some of the churches where they say, well, see, the Jews blew it, so they're done. God's done with the Jews. Nope. Um, there is coming a day uh, where the Jews will realize uh, all the prophets and all of what Jesus did and they'll realize Jesus is the Messiah, that blindness that Paul talks about in Romans 9, 10, and 11, uh, that blindness will be lifted from the Jews' eyes. And it says, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and I believe that's the rapture of the church, then it says, all of Israel shall be saved. What a glorious day coming for the Jews. But it's gonna come at a great price. Uh, the tribulation period is one of the reasons the tribulation period is gonna happen. Not for us, because we're gonna be in heaven. But the tribulation is gonna happen to wake up a nation of Jews to see Jesus as the Messiah. So one of the things when you see these Jewish people and his hometown people and Jews rejecting Jesus, it's all part of that blinding that's happened uh, from even in the Old Testament prophets. Uh, so we saw that on Sunday, this was Jesus's second trip to Nazareth. The first trip didn't go very well either. Uh, the people of Nazareth rejected Jesus both times. Um, and so I'm gonna call this missed opportunity number one here out of six in this chapter. Missed opportunity number one, to know Jesus Christ. They didn't know him. Remember we talked about his identity. They thought he was a carpenter born of Mary, which was a very insulting term. If you remember what we talked about on Sunday, um, basically calling him illegitimate. Uh, but they didn't really know Jesus. They didn't wanna know Jesus personally. They didn't wanna know his true identity as the Christos, the Messiah, son of the living God. Um, you know, uh, I hope that uh, we learn from that. You know, um, you know, those that don't believe in Jesus, I pray that the people don't come familiar with Jesus's name. Today, a lot of people, uh, they're familiar with the name of Jesus because people swear with that name or they talk about Jesus derogatorily or as even as a joke in our culture. And man, you don't wanna be any part of that as Christians. That's, a, uh, that's truly an abomination to uh, speak that way of Jesus. So don't be a part of that, but that familiarity, uh, it doomed the men of Nazareth. The second opportunity we're gonna see here is in verses seven through 13, we'll call this the opportunity to share the word. Let's see how they handle this. It's verse seven, it begins, and he, Jesus, called unto him the 12th and began to send them forth two by two and gave them power over unclean spirits and commanded them that they should take nothing for their journey save a staff only, no script, no bread, no money in their purse, um, but they should be shod with sandals and not to put on two coats. Um, what's all this about? Um, Jesus is sending his disciples and there's some things about this that uh, I think are interesting. You know, what were the preconceived ideas the disciples had when they would be sent out 
to go and do the work of Jesus and you know evangelize and stuff like that? Did they have envision you know uh, having special garments and you know weapons? Uh, maybe I'm sure you know uh, Simon the Zealot probably shot thought oh we're gonna arm up you know we're gonna really be ready. But he says just bring bring nothing but just some sandals and a, don't even bring an extra coat. Uh, the idea is man you're just you're traveling really really light. Um, uh, it was it was really marked by simplicity. Um, there, there's an ur- urgency to go, but there's also uh, simplicity. But they were supposed to go in power, not their own power or their own st- strategery, uh, but they were to go in the power of the Holy Spirit given to them by the Lord. Um, it says that, verse seven, he gave them power over the unclean spirits. Um, this is great. The disciples are, are ready with the power uh, of the Lord. Notice also they were supposed to go simplicity uh, with the power, but also two by two. Um, I wanted to point that out because um, that's always a really good model for just about anything you can think of in Christianity. Two by two. Um, you know, Jesus sent them out two by two. Why do you think he sent them out two by two? Well, we could, we could talk about that uh, and, and, and a lot of it's speculation, but you know, maybe there was some accountability Maybe there was some backup. You know, maybe you're gonna be tempted to be on your best behavior with another person there watching and holding you accountable for what you're saying. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's safety in that kind of accountability. Um, also, two by two is better. If, if one person kind of falls short, maybe the other person can step in where there's weakness. Uh, two are better than one, the Bible says. Uh, you know, and, and that's just the truth of the matter. Um, in Deuteronomy, uh, you know, it talks about two, it was actually established way back in Deuteronomy 19, one witness shall not rise up against a man for any iniquity or for any sin in any sin that he sinneth. And at the mouth of two witnesses or at the mouth of three witnesses shall the matter be established. In other words, this, this safety model of t- at least two um, uh, is, is kind of all throughout the scripture. Um, it was also not just accountability, if one is off, the other can correct path or course, but it's also about recognition. I wonder if Jesus sent them two by two so that not one person would get all the glory if something really good happened. Um, that's something that I think should be in all ministry is a two by two model. If somebody needs healing, oftentimes as elders, we'll, we'll call um, several elders. In fact, in James five, when it says, if there's anybody sick among you, call the elders, plural, and have them anoint you with oil and pray. We'll talk about that in a second later on. But, um, but it's elders, plural, because um, I don't think that it's healthy to have one person. You know, it, what happens when one person prays for healing, then it suddenly becomes the Benny Hinn healing ministries. It's all about Benny Hinn, you know. Uh, he, I alone have the holy anointing. No, you do not. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's, a mis, it's a misnomer to say that one person has the gift of healing. Um, by the way, uh, huge linguistic error has made people say, I have a gift, I have the gift of healing. That is biblically so wrong. The Lord gives out gifts severally to whoever he will for healing. So like if you're sick and you come and have the elders pray for you, um, the Lord might give you a gift of healing through prayer of the church. Um, it's not that the elders have a gift of healing, it's that God gives, um, you know where the misnomer comes? And I'm, I'm way off course, I probably shouldn't talk about all this tonight. But um, in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, now concerning spiritual gifts, but if you look at 1 Corinthians 12, the word gifts is in italics. It's not even there. It, says, it really says, now uh, concerning spiritual things, 
or things of the Holy Spirit, pneumatica. It's like the word pneuma, which is the Holy Spirit, concerning things that are spiritual. And then it talks about how the Spirit manifests itself. So people have wrongly ascribed the manifestations of the Spirit with things that you call gifts. Now, by the way, there are things that people have, personal giftings, but those aren't the manifestational gifts. Um, what, are, what do we call those, anybody? Romans chapter 12. And we call those, the, some people call them the motivational gifts. And those are gifts people really do have. Uh, like for example, there's um, the gift of mercy or the gift of administration or the gift of teaching. There's different lists of gifts people are given according to God uh, and his word. But when it comes to the manifestations of the spirit, those aren't gifts that you have. I have the gift of healing. No, you, uh, you, you, you may be given a gift through you. Does that make sense? It's a linguistic thing that uh, a lot of people don't take the time to actually think about, which we should when it comes to the Bible. Uh, anyway, sorry, I got off on a tangent there. Um, but that's why at Athe Creek, we don't have like just one guy generally praying as much as we can. We'll try to bring more than one because um, when we pray for healing, we won't be, oh, pray, make sure and go to pastor so-and-so. He's got the gift, you know? Uh, I had that reputation for a while. There was a season uh, at Athe Creek where um, uh, ladies that were overdue and pregnant and like they were like a few days or a few weeks overdue, um, the word got out that I had a, a gift. And, and I really, I even, I even had to start thinking, man, maybe I'm the exception to the Bible here. Because um, <laughs> true story, uh, there was two times after service, ladies would come up and, and uh, they would say, oh, Brett, would you please pray for me? And, and as we, we just, come on, let's, let's pray. And we prayed, water broke right there. Um, and they sent them off to the hospital. That, that's happened to me twice. So the word got out, you know, go to Pastor Brett if you're overdue, boy. Uh, but uh, I can't claim that anymore. I'm not, I'm not as successful as, as I once was. Um, I do not have the gift of uh, inducing labor. <laughs> uh, uh, we're putting Pitocin in the water fountains out there. No, just, just kidding. You guys, anyway. Um, let's see, where were we? Oh, yes. <laughs> so uh, sending out two by two, simplicity, power, two by two, accountability, um, you know, balance, that, that's, that's the way we should do it. If you're a young person wanting to go on a mission field, I would warn against going out by yourself. I'm not sure that's, Paul always went with Silas or Paul and Barnabas, you know, like they always had their, their, their uh, you know, Moses and Aaron. There was always two by two. It's a biblical model that you wanna follow. Um, so anyway, back to point two. Um, we, uh, we, uh, opportunity number two is now, these guys can share the word. And we, uh, we see that they're sent out. Now it goes on here in this section, verse 10. It says, and Jesus said unto them, in what place soever you enter into a house, there abide till you depart from that place. Um, <laughs> why does Jesus say that? I wonder if the disciples would have a uh, temptation to upgrade. You know, they start off the Motel 6 uh, and end up at the Fairmonts. You know what I mean? It's like, like uh, you know, people start getting healed and blessed and pretty soon people start, hey, uh, come over to my house. We have a little more square footage and some better food. Uh, but no, uh, Jesus set kind of a rule. Uh, don't don't um, just stay right where you start. Um, he takes, uh, uh, by the way, this is uh, Jesus giving very specific uh, orders about how these guys are supposed to go. And, and, um, and I love that, um, that, that Jesus is very clear about some very basic things. Um, I think that um, when you go out, if you're a young you know, high school kid wanting to go out on the mission field, um, always make sure that there's a plan and, and that you're 
thoughtful about those things. I know there's a temptation to say, I'm gonna go out, I'm gonna go to Uruguay by myself and start sharing the gospel. I'm not, I don't have any plan other than a plane ticket. I don't think that's a good plan. Uh, where do you find the plan? Well, there, there's a good way to do that, and that is to have confirmation of your other brothers and sisters from the church that's sending you. Well, I don't need the church to send me. Yes, you do. Um, there's, there's only a few authorities the Lord recognizes in the Bible. And it's not that Athey wants to be an authority over you. That's, that's, those are cult churches that do that. But um, we wanna be helpers of your joy, not to have dominion over, over your faith. But there, there is a good thing to say, man, we're gonna, we're gonna be accountable to our leadership and say, here's the plan. And, and there's been times where we've told people, we're not sure you, we like your plan of where you're going, how you're gonna do it. And so we help adjust the plan and try to go with wisdom. And the people that have always uh, said, we're gonna go with the plan and, and have accountability, the Lord always blesses them. The people that go out on their own, the Lone Ranger missionary or whatever, it doesn't always go very well. In fact, most of the time it ends up in disaster. Just gonna say that. Uh, in another, not just your church, another institution the Lord recognizes is your family, uh, your parents. Uh, if your parents are saying, yeah, we're not so sure about you, whatever, mom, uh, don't do that. You're being immature. Uh, there's, there's a good thing to be accountable and, and to hold one another accountable. Um, so um, anyway, uh, not everyone, by the way, uh, in verse 11, we see not everybody's gonna be saved. Check this out. Verse 11, and whosoever shall not receive you, nor hear you when you depart thence, shake off the dust under your feet for a testimony against them. Verily I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. Not everybody's gonna repent and be saved. And if that happens, uh, what do you do? <laughs> now, if, have, have any of you ever seen people shaking the dust off their feet uh, symbolically at your doorstep? Uh, if you have, it's probably that they were Jehovah's Witness. They love this verse, the Jehovah's Witness, uh, which is a cult. Um, and uh, uh, if you wanna see this, probably the best way to do this is just when they knock on your door and they say, we'd like to give you the Watchtower magazine from the you know, boys over in Brooklyn, their Watchtower Society. Um, just all you have to do is say, you know what? I believe in the Trinity, uh, the Bible, the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And man, uh, at least my experience, that's like, that's like a code word to say, uh, shake the dust off your feet and leave that house right then. Um, you know, some, some, in the old days, it used to be a shotgun, get out of my property. Uh, now all you have to say, Trinity, I believe in the Holy Trinity. And they're like shaking their feet. Uh, I've had several JWs shake their feet, uh, literally on my porch. Um, it's kind of a funny little jig they do there. But, um, but it's, it's actually, um, their, their doctrine is way off, uh, the Jehovah's Witness. Um, it's a works-based salvation. It's not salvation by grace through faith. It's a works-based salvation, different Jesus than the Jesus that we believe. But that's one of the things that you think of. Now, what did Jesus mean? Uh, if you share the gospel and somebody rejects you, should you start shaking your foot at them? Um, it, it's, I believe it's something we don't literally do. It's, it's more of a figure of speech that Jesus is, it's the same kind of figure of speech when you say, I'm gonna wash my hands of this situation. Uh, you're not literally gonna wash your hands. You're saying, um, I've done what I can, but I'm out. 
Um, and that's, that's what Jesus is basically saying here. So I'm not sure this was meant, it might've been meant literally in those days because they wore sandals and they had dust on their feet, literally. We, we generally don't, especially here in Portland. Maybe you should start shaking your feet if you live down in Arizona or dusty places. But uh, here, you don't have to shake your feet. Uh, it, it's, it's more a figure of speech. The idea is some people are not gonna listen, so just move on. Um, by the way, um, if Jesus ministered and shared and bunches of people rejected him, do you think people are gonna reject the ministry you have? I, I have to remember that sometimes because uh, as a pastor, you know, you, it's funny how you, you're thankful for all the people that get saved and the good fruit and baptism and all the things that we see. But it's, just, it's so sad when you see people reject and be angry. It's like those almost stick with you, sadly, more than the beautiful stories of, of blessing. Um, you remember kind of the, the bad ones. But that's what Jesus is saying. You gotta just shake it off a little bit and just keep going. And not everybody's gonna believe. And if not everybody believed Jesus, then they're surely not everybody's gonna believe you. Uh, and same with Jeremiah. Ministered for 42 years, not one person was saved in Jeremiah's ministry. Uh, do you think Jeremiah had to shake it off a few times? Um, boy, that's what the book of Jeremiah is about, is him shaking it off, uh, being thrown in a pit, shake it off, uh, being left in a mud puddles, shake it off. Like, it's amazing how poor Jeremiah did that. Um, but anyway, shake the dust off your feet figuratively is kind of the, the idea. Um, um, there, by the way, uh, when do you know that it's time to shake the dust off your feet? You know, figuratively. When do you know it's time to say, you know what, I've given it my best shot and I'm done sharing the gospel with these people or trying to minister to these people? And the answer is actually not as easy as I wish. I wish I could say at this, at this exact point, you know, but that's sometimes the hard one. But there is a, a, a threshold somewhere, and I, I think you have to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit um, as you're sharing. Um, and um, if I'm gonna err, I'm gonna err on the side of, of just keep going until I really feel the Lord's telling me to pull away. Because um, some of the people that I've seen saved, it sometimes comes hard and takes a long time for them to be convinced. And I'm glad that there's been times where we stuck with it. But there's other times I, I kind of get a sense, man, I'm just talking to the wind. Or, or even as Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter seven, you can jot this down in your notes, Matthew seven, six. It says, you know, don't give that which is holy unto the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before the swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn again, uh, and rend you or rip you apart. Um, there are some people uh, that I don't think have any zero desire to be saved or to know Jesus. And there's gotta be a point where you're gonna say, it's time to move on. Uh, not gonna throw my pearls to the swine. Uh, I think that's, that's an important thing to remember. Well, Jesus warns, if, if they don't listen to you, just shake it off, move forward, keep going. They're gonna be judged in the day like Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a pretty strong word right there, uh, to say the least. Well, verse 12, um, it says, and they went out and preached that men should repent. Boy, people uh, need to get back to preaching of repentance. Uh, this is something that is so lacking. Uh, I talk about repentance every Sunday. When I talk about the gospel, I always say you need to repent. Uh, uh, and um, and I, always, I always try to quickly define that uh, because the, the, the idea of repentance is sort of a big deal. But the word repent uh, is the same word they used in the military to do an about face. Uh, it means to go a different direction. Um, and um, this is one of the mistakes the church has made is not, they, they wanna preach the gospel but they think somehow the, the, the gospel doesn't include repentance. It's just God loves you. 
Uh, and then the church starts preaching that he loves you the way you are, which the question is, does God love you the way you are? Yes. But does God save you to keep you the way you are? No, that's what the church misses so many times. This idea of repentance, you know, God doesn't save you just to keep you in your sin. Um, so the mistake that some of the churches out in the so-called love, um, squishy, gishy, sloppy agape, as I call it, uh, uh, that kind of church love, oh, just let, yeah, come, you can smoke pot, you can have sex, you can, you can be a homosexual, you can do this, and come in and just be the, be the, uh, and they leave it there. Uh, that's not the true gospel. Um, the gospel is you repent of your sins. When Jesus was there with the prostitutes, the publicans and the sinners, did they keep prostituting and publicaning? Um, no, uh, they, they were saved and they repented of their sins. John the Baptist preached repentance. Jesus and his disciples preached repentance. Um, and so um, now, now here's where it's a, it's a sticky subject because if you're not careful, what I just said can be taken a little further in saying that you're not really saved unless you leave all your sins behind. Uh, it's almost like you gotta repent and he's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. You haven't really repented if you're still sinning. If that's the case, my question is simply this, who really gets to go to heaven then? No one, not even Paul the apostle. Because remember Paul, even as a, uh, one of our champion, big wig, Christian of Christians, uh, Paul the apostle, in the middle of his ministry said, I do the things I don't wanna do and I don't do the things I do wanna do. And I find in my flesh, there's no good thing. Like he was still struggling. Even as an old man in 1 Timothy chapter one, he old Paul the apostle tells young Timothy, he says, I, Paul the apostle, am, not was, he did say was earlier in chapter one. He said, I was injurious, a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. Um, but then I obtained mercy, he says in, in 1 Timothy chapter one. But then he says, but I, Paul, am, not was, am the chiefest of sinners. Was Paul like needing to confess sin? Is he gonna go to hell because he's still sinning? That's, there's some people that will try to teach kind of a lordship doctrine that's, I believe is a really bad teaching. Um, but do you see the fine line here? The, the fine line is there's the, the one side of people that are saying, man, just be who you are. You don't have to change anything. Um, uh, and and, you know, and there, there's, a, there's a correct thing in the sense that you can come to Christ just as you are. And you can be saved by his grace. You're not saved by fixing your sins or stopping your sins. That's not how you're saved. You're saved by what Jesus did on the cross. But when, when it says, it's, it's kind of built in. You know the scripture I'm always quoting on Sunday, uh, Romans uh, 10, 9 and 10. It says, you know, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died on the cross and rose from the grave, you will be saved, it says. Built into that is the notion that you believe that Jesus died and rose again. Well, why is that important? The implication is but you're saying he died for my sins. That's you recognizing you're a sinner who needs to be saved um, and laying your sins down at the foot of the cross is kind of what you're saying in that confession of faith. You're saying, I know I'm a sinner and you're acknowledging your sin before God. Um, now, once you're truly saved by God's grace through faith, you're not saved by works. You're not even really saved by your ability to keep repenting. Do you understand that? The repentance is changing your mind. It doesn't mean you're perfect from that day forward because then no one would be saved. But if you say, I'm changing my mind and I'm gonna believe in Christ that he died on the cross for my sins, rose from the grave, 
Then in that powerful moment of salvation that Christ does by the work on the cross, then the Lord will start to work on you. You're a work in progress. He'll start taking away the desires that you once had for sin. And there will be battles from that day forward. You will wrestle with sin the rest of your life. But it's, there is kind of a continual, Lord, I, forgive me and I repent. Now, dangerous place if a person does all that, accepts Christ, repents of their sin, and then moves into sin and keeps sinning and starts defending their sin and saying, I don't repent of that sin. Um, can I just say, that's why homosexuality, people say, Brett, why do you guys always talk about homosexual sin? Why don't you talk about other sins? Well, here's the thing. Um, it's the one sin that everybody's celebrating, especially in the month of June. We're celebrating with pride our sin. And if you claim to be a Christian, but you're celebrating something that the Bible calls sin, you're not repentant about that. The Bible says those who continually practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Brett, are you arguing that if somebody just keeps sinning without repentance that they might go to hell? Yeah. Well, Brett, aren't you eternally secure? Well, I believe in eternal security. Um, well, then what do you say? See, people get all into the, the nuance of did you lose your salvation or whatever, once saved, always saved, Arminian versus Calvinism and all this stuff. All I know is this. There's scriptures that make it clear if you just continually keep practicing such things, witchcraft, adultery, fornication, homosexuality, it's all on the list there. It says you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You can uh, debate what that means, but pretty much clear, it says you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I wanna inherit the kingdom of heaven. How do you do that? By God's grace through faith. So when you're saved by grace through faith, then you're saying from this day forward, I'm gonna do my best to walk his way and do his work and, and follow his word. And you'll make mistakes. And that's why we need to confess our sins daily. And, and then the Lord says, I will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Um, we all struggle with sin. Um, and you know, the, 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 there's no difference between you, me, and the homosexual out there and marching for pride, except for one thing. Um, you and I hopefully are saying, yeah, we struggle with sin, but it's a struggle. And we know that we're, gonna, we're trying to repent and say, we're changing. Lord, change my heart, change my attitude. But if you're marching in pride about any sin, then you got a problem. Uh, I would say you're not in safe ground eternally. Uh, it's up to the Lord to decide. Uh, he knows, but I would not wanna play with that fire, if you know what I mean, because it's quite literal when we talk about fire. Anyway, <sighs> I didn't mean to get off on all these tangents tonight. We got a whole chapter to go here. Um, so opportunity to share the word. The topic here is repentance. And um, make sure when you're sharing the gospel that the word repentance is part of your uh, discussion because I think sometimes we forget to bring that part in. We shouldn't. Repentance is key. Uh, recognize you're a sinner. Turn the opposite direction. Uh, and re re I would say, um, you know, hyper-repentance is saying that you have to repent. And if you ever sin again, you're, you're going to hell. That's ridiculous. Um, but the idea is repentance is more of a mindset. Uh, as you're saved by God's grace, you'll want to walk in his truth. Um, anyway, all that to say, uh, verse 13, not only were they preaching repentance, verse 13, they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. Uh, there's only a few places in the New Testament where they talk about anointing with oil. And this is one of them, where the disciples go around anointing people with oil that were sick. Um, why didn't Jesus do that? Why are the disciples anointing people with oil? Like there's some good questions here. Um, Jesus was the embodiment of power 
and, and the power by the Spirit. But what's the idea of anointing oil? Well, in the Old Testament, anointing oil was very symbolic. And what was the main symbol of oil? Anybody? Right, the Holy Spirit. Um, and I, I, I believe anointing oil can be a good reminder. It's, it's not that there's power in the actual oil itself, if you ask me. It's more about what the oil represents and what it stands for. Um, it's powerful in the same way that I believe communion, the elements of the bread and the cup are powerful um, to remind us of something greater and powerful in the same way anointing oil is that. And, um, and so it's not just here. Another passage, I mentioned it earlier, is James 5, verses 14 and 15. As any sick among you, let him call for the elders. Remember the plural, elders of the church? And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven. And by the way, James connects like Jesus does. Remember the Mark 4, the guy who was crippled, lowered in the roof. Uh, and he said, your sins are forgiven. Then he healed him and said, take up your bed and walk. Often healing with the forgiveness of sin is often coupled together, such is the case here. Uh, so call on the elders. Uh, by the way, um, you know, do you, are you willing to do that? We have special services just kind of centered on that. When we do Sunday night worship, we open up that time where there's the elders standing off on the side, uh, you know, kind of out of the main part of the sanctuary, just kind of ready to pray. Elders, leaders, uh, some of our pastoral staff, they're there ready to pray with you, to anoint you with oil, uh, even give you counsel if you're seeking kind of a quick word of direction or counsel. Um, we have some great men and women, you know, we have our pastors and elders that are men, but we also have some women that are amazing women who are counselors. Or we call them our Titus II uh, women because the Bible talks about older women are instructing and, and teaching younger women. And I'm so thankful for our Titus II women, great women of faith who uh, pray for and help uh, specifically women too uh, in our church. But uh, why wouldn't we take advantage of going to the elders um, you know, don't say to yourself, the elders will call on each person and see if they need anointing oil lately. That's not gonna happen. Some of you act like that. It's like, I kind of find it interesting. I know none of the pastors called me. Uh, well, we didn't know what's going on. I've got cancer, stage four. Um, you didn't call us? Uh, well, we kind of thought the Holy Spirit would have told you. Like, like I'm Pastor Rat driving by the, the hospital. I'm like, oh, the Holy Ghost is drawing me to go. No, that doesn't happen, not lately. Um, but ask, it says, if there's any sick among you, let him or her, I would add, call for the elders of the church. We have pastors who would love to pray with you and take advantage of that. Don't be, don't be prideful and think, oh, I got this and I have other people praying for me. This is what the Bible says. Have the elders come. Hey, Brad, are you saying your elders have a special gift of teaching? I just covered that. <laughs> but the Bible says, call for the elders. There is something the Lord says, I wanna use the elders of the church to be those who will pray and anoint with oil. Um, that's something that's real in the Bible. Sunday night worship, the elders are available for that, but we're also on call, ready to pray with you if you need that. <laughs> so take advantage of that, very important. Um, opportunity number three on our list, as we're blazing through this chapter, uh, <laughs> opportunity number three is to repent from sin. That's verses 14 through 29. Let's take a look. It says, um, and King Herod heard of him, that's Jesus, heard of Jesus, for his name was spread abroad. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. Um, huh, 
Now, this is interesting. This is not Herod the Great, by the way. Some people get confused. This is one of his uh, sons. Herod the Great had three sons. Uh, there was, um, and this one has to, happens to be Herod Antipas. Um, and uh, just remember Antipasta. Uh, that, like, uh, that's, that's who this guy was. Um, he was very superstitious. Um, and um, and he, he thinks that John the Baptist has come back to life. Now we're about to hear why he knows John the Baptist is dead. He had a part in that. Um, but, um, but he's thinking, uh-oh. Now, can you imagine a superstitious weirdo like this guy, Herod Antipas, suddenly thinking, John the Baptist is back. Um, and, uh, and this superstition. Now, this is funny to me because did you know that Josephus, the ancient first century historian, wrote that Jesus and John the Baptist looked similar? They had a similar look to, to them, uh, which does make sense, by the way, because they were cousins, right? Um, uh, my family, we have kind of an interesting thing. My uh, second cousin once removed or something like that, uh, one of my favorite guys, I always thought of him as more of an uncle, is Ross Metter. Uh, he's living in Idaho now, but he was here as one of our elders for a while. Those of you guys that know Ross, but Ross looks like he's like my dad's brother. Um, and uh, everybody kind of knows the Metter crew, that, like they, are, they all kind of look similar. Um, but, uh, but what's funny is Ross's dad and my dad's dad were identical twins. So it's really funny. In fact, before I was born, um, my grandparents dated identical people. There were two sets of twins dating. That would have been kind of funny to see, but one of them broke up and didn't get married. But, but um, because of that, my, my dad's dad and my, my, my great uncle, I remember my great uncle would come over to our house and I think, oh, there's Poppy, you know, because uh, they looked identical as my, as my grandfather. Um, but uh, in some ways, you know, the, the cousins can look a lot alike. And, and Josephus writes that, that the Jesus and John the Baptist looked almost identical. That's the way he wrote about it in the first century, which would also con contribute to the rumor, um, the swirling about who Jesus really was. And remember that we've heard, we've heard about that. He's John the Baptist, you know, uh, who is John the Baptist? Well, he's Elijah the prophet. Like there was swirling uh, mysteries around John the Baptist and around Jesus. But, um, but actually this is kind of a crazy soap opera. Let's take a look. It says in verse uh, 15, others said that, you know, Jesus was Elijah. We learned that in Matthew 16. Others said that it's a prophet or one of the prophets. But when Herod heard thereof, he said, it is John, whom I beheaded, he is risen from the dead. Wow, this, this Herod Antipas is a man of faith. He believes John the Baptist is risen from the dead. Um, you know, interesting, uh, by, by the way, what, what happened here? Well, the, um, well, let's just keep reading. It says, uh, verse 17, for Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold on John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife for he had married her. Uh, for John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. How did this go down? Well, we, we looked at this more in depth when we were in the Gospel of Matthew, so I'm not gonna do a deep dive into this, but Herod Antipas, um, you know, his, his brother, one of the other sons of Herod the Great, uh, uh, Herodias was his wife and, and uh, Herod Antipas fell in love with Herodias. And so she dumped Philip and moved over with Herod Antipas. John the Baptist was known to have gone to talk to Herod Antipas. In fact, uh, we know from scripture that Herod Antipas was happy whenever he listened to John the Baptist. He was happy about that. And so um, what's interesting about the happy thing is uh, eventually because John the Baptist was scolding him and saying, you know what? 
you uh, should not be with her. And John the Baptist was like uh, speaking the truth. Uh, by the way, is it okay as a Christian to tell the truth to people? You should not be married to her. Some people would say, oh, you can't say that. Um, and by the way, I would just remind you in Pride Month that we as Christians need to speak the truth. Um, love is love, Brett. No, love, remember? First Corinthians 13, I think it's verse six. Love rejoices not in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Um, love is not the squishy, mishy thing alone. It is, it can be that too, but it also speaks truth. And I think we as Christians start, need to start saying the truth instead of just being silent or affirming uh, sinful things. John the Baptist calls out Herod Antos. Yeah, but Brett, that's not a way to get ahead. Um, <laughs> sorry, little beheading humor. Um, that's true. Uh, John the Baptist did, did, uh, did die here, but... Um, but you remember, as a Christian, death is not the worst thing. Um, John the Baptist was the greatest man born among women. Jesus said that. Um, but, uh, you know, John, he looked crazy with his camel hair and locust bug teeth in between his teeth with twitchy little legs of bugs and stuff. No doubt, John the Baptist looked, looked like a, a little bit crazy. But Herod was intrigued by John. Um, and at first, Herod... Um, Antipas was made glad by John and he would even talk to him probably while he was in prison. But uh, all that to say, um, this guy, I think Herod Antipas represents the person who likes to hear the sermon, but doesn't wanna do the sermon. Uh, that's kind of where we find uh, Herod Antipas. Um, and, um, and I think that's the problem. Well, anyway, um, uh, it goes on here where um, basically uh, verse 21 where were we? No, verse 19. Therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against him. Can you imagine why? Um, and would, would have killed him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just man and holy and observed him when he had heard him. He did many things and heard him gladly. Isn't that interesting? Herod Antipas heard John the Baptist gladly. He liked listening to the guy. Um, um, by the way, when it says he did many things, well, what did he do? This is a little bit of a Greek word mystery, but um, is anybody familiar with Kenneth, Kenneth Wiest word studies in the New Testament Greek? Uh, it's a great resource, four volumes. Wiest was a Greek uh, and he, expert, but he, he writes in his book, um, um, it was basically was um, uh, when he'd hear John the Baptist, instead of saying he did many things, the actual translation is it left Herod Antipas in a state of perplexity. Like John the Baptist would speak and Herod Antipas would go, man, how am I supposed to think now? You know, which is kind of interesting. That's what Christianity does sometimes, doesn't it? It's like you were raised to believe this and then Christianity kind of blows that up and then you have to kind of say, how do I, what do I do with this now? Now that I'm a Christian, well, um, Herod Antipas never really was a Christian, I don't believe, but he was thinking, man, John the Baptist is true and he seems smart, just man, but he, he leaves more perplexed than he does changed or transformed. So she wants to kill John the Baptist, but she can't figure out how because Herod kind of likes him. Well, verse 21, when a convenient day was come, she's waiting for a convenient day to kill him, um, uh, and Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains and chief estates of Galilee. And when the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced, uh, she's not doing the Macarena. 
she's seductively dancing in front of this creepy guy and everything, and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. Uh, the king said unto the damsel, ask me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it thee. And he swear unto her, whatsoever thou ask of me, I will give it to thee unto half of my kingdom. And she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in straightway in hate, with haste unto the king and asked saying, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger, the head of John the Baptist. Um, this, is, this is very sad, sick, sinful family doing more sick and sinful stuff. Um, again, in Matthew 14, we kind of went in depth on this one, but I wanna show you the irony of the sense of honor. There's a, there's a few things of a sense of honor here. Did you notice? Um, uh, Herod won't go back on an oath, but he will kill God's person. Like what a weird sense of honor that is. Um, he'll chop someone's head off, but he won't go on. You know, it's, it, by the way, there's a lot of people that like to sort of pretend that they're honorable, but they're really a bunch of sinful wackos, just like Herod Antipas. Um, we, we would call that maybe today virtue signaling uh, today. Uh, performative, but ultimately empty displays of moral goodness. That's what virtue signaling is. Um, it's interesting, um, you know, a lot of this stuff about the, um, the things we do to say, I'm, I'm doing what's right for the environment. Uh, Forbes did an article uh, fairly recently, why bag bans are nothing but absurd virtue signaling. Uh, and it goes on to talk about the reusable, heavier stitched handbags that people use. Um, they're made out of polypropylene, most of them, which is more plastic. And in reality, people won't be using them enough to make them a true net plus for the environment. Um, and they can't be recycled either. The ones that are, you're, you're saying, well, yeah, but I'm using it over and over again. Well, as it turns out, they showed how these bags using these um, bags over and over again, they get really grotesque with foodborne diseases, uh, illness uh, microorganisms. Uh, and, um, and for supposedly environmentally friendly or paper bags, um, which is all be kind of a big myth in and of itself. But the article, this is Forbes, not necessarily you know, some anti-climate change uh, group, but it was interesting to hear, yeah, it's just a bunch of virtue signaling. And you know, we, I, there's studies done on straws. You know, How many of you guys love those paper straws they give you here in Portlandia, where you, you get a couple sips and then it just kind of disintegrates <laughs> and melts into your Coke or whatever? that you're drinking. Um, um, but uh, th this, this is kind of the thing of the world to sort of virtue signal, I'll keep my oath, Herod says, but he's gonna chop off the number one person that ever lived on the earth, according to Jesus, John the Baptist. What a weirdo. Verse 26, the king was exceeding sorry, yet for his oath's sake, it says that. Um, uh, he would not reject her. Verse 27, and immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head be, to be brought. And he went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head in a charger and gave it to the damsel. And the damsel gave it to her mother. And when his disciples heard of it, they came and took up his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Um, question, how many heads of John the Baptist are there? Um, according to this um, uh, article, there's four heads of John the Baptist. One of them's in a mosque. At least four different traditions point to four other locations. One's in Rome, one's in Munich, one's in Damascus, um, uh, one's in Israel. Um, 
different monasteries uh, claimed to have his, uh, but his poor, poor guy, his head's all over the place. Um, I, I think I told you this in Matthew where there's a, a tour group were touring in one museum and said, you know, we were just in Jerusalem and you claim this, they had a head of John the Baptist in Jerusalem, you have one here. And the tour guide quick thinking said, well, this is the, you'll notice the one in Jerusalem was smaller than this skull. That was John the Baptist's head when he was a baby. This one's a... <laughs> Um, sorry. <laughs> True though, they, the people claim they have John. Forget the relics, I hope, especially if you're coming out of a liturgical kind of church where they're into relics and, you know, is this the cloth that Jesus wiped his face with or, or the, you know, is this toast, you know, uh, Jesus face toast or like, um, that's kind of a, I know that some of the Catholics get really into that stuff. Um, they're just things. Uh, and they're, they're just, I think that, they become sort of idolatry in kind of a weird and grotesque way. Uh, we shouldn't be into relics and stuff like that. Uh, the Bible actually teaches against that. Now, we come here to um, opportunity number four, uh, to show compassion, to show compassion. So, so far we had an opportunity to know Jesus, opportunity to share the word, opportunity to repent from sin, um, but we've, uh, we've, we've not seen a lot of that opportunity taken. But in, now we have opportunity to show compassion in verse 30. And the apostles gathered themselves together unto Jesus and told him all things, both what they had done and what they had taught. And he said unto them, come ye, so, ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while. Um, boy, uh, always something we need to do uh, to rest I know sometimes it seems holy and spiritual to just work so hard that you never take breaks or rest, both in your real work and stuff, but also in ministry, something about ministry. Um, and, and Jesus even gives you know, them a, a chance to rest. Four, verse 31, there were many coming and going and they had no leisure so much as to eat. Busy ministry. Um, and you gotta take a break once in a while. Um, verse 32, and they departed into a desert place by ship privately. And the people saw them departing and many knew him and ran a foot thither out of all the cities and outwent them and came together unto him. And Jesus went and he came out and saw much people and was moved with compassion toward them because they were as sheep, not having a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Man, Jesus says, let's get away, let's rest. Let's secretly go off across the sea of Galilee. And, and then the people run faster than they can sail. Uh, and then they, they're greeted by the crowd. We're here, you know, it's like, ah, oh, turn the boat around. No, Jesus, Jesus says, oh, let's have compassion on them. I love the heart of Jesus. Verse 35, and when the disciples, pardon me, when the day was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desert place. And now the time is far past. Send them away that they may go into the country round about and into the villages and buy themselves bread for they have nothing to eat. And he answered and said unto them, give ye them to eat. And they said unto him, shall we go and buy 200 penny worth of bread and give them, give them to eat? And he said unto them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. And when they knew, they say five and two fishes, five loaves and two fishes. And he commanded them to make them all sit down by companies upon the green grass. And they sat down in ranks by hundreds and by fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven, blessed and break the loaves and gave, to them as, gave them to his disciples to set before them and the two fishes dividing he among them all. And they did all eat and were filled. And they 
took up 12 baskets full of the fragments and of the fishes. And they that did eat of the loaves were 5,000 men. We have here the feeding of the 5,000. Um, we went over this uh, in depth um, in uh, Matthew's account of this, but one of the things about this that's, that's pretty uh, important is to, to remember that Jesus didn't tell them how necessarily it was gonna, you know, they said, should we go and spend this much money? You know, uh, the disciples are trying to think logistically, you know, how should we do this? Um, shall we go and buy, you know, go to Costco and get some bread? Uh, how are we gonna do this, Lord? And Jesus doesn't really tell them how. Verse 38, he said to them, how many loaves have you? Go and see. So there's, they're saying, you know, go, go and buy. And Jesus says, no, go and see. Sometimes you have to just go and see what the Lord just might do um, because it's out of your ability. Um, the miracle was already underway. As soon as Jesus said, go and see, the miracle was underway. Uh, sometimes I think, you know, you gotta just move and the Lord can't steer a parked car. So you gotta start moving. And even before you know, you gotta go. Um, that's a good lesson here. Um, so the disciples are sort of lacking faith at first here. Um, like, what are we gonna do? These people are starving, send them away. Uh, but then Jesus says, go and see how many loaves and fishes. And then they see this great miracle. Um, so this is an opportunity to show compassion to the people. The disciples said, get them out of here. Um, they kind of failed in that one, but Jesus was moved with compassion on the multitudes. Um, that brings us to opportunity number five, um, to grow in faith. It's, we start that in verse 45. It says, and straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship, to go to the other side before Bethsaida, where, uh, while he sent away the people. And when um, he had said to them away, uh, sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when evening was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and, and, and rowing for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he comes unto them walking upon the sea and would have passed them by. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out for they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and said unto them, be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up into the, uh, with them up into the ship and the wind ceased and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered for they considered not the miracle of the loaves for their heart was hardened. Interesting, they just saw a huge miracle of the loaves and fishes. Remember when I told you about the Red Sea? Do you still have faith? They just saw the feeding of the 5,000. And not only that, this is the second storm they've been in with Jesus. And, and like, you'd think they'd start getting it. Chill out, man. I know we're in a storm, but remember what happened last time? Now, um, again, Mark's account of this is much more Reader's Digest, Cliff's Notes version uh, of, uh, of the story. In Matthew's account, it's much more detailed. But um, what are some of the differences but the, the way Mark's account is versus Matthew? Well, um, in the first storm, Jesus was in the boat sleeping in Mark's account of the first storm. But one of the things Mark does point out is Jesus is not with them in the boat. Now in this one. Now in the in-depth story in Matthew chapter 14, um, something big is left out of this account in Mark. Does anybody remember? What's probably the biggest thing that's left out of this story? Peter walking on the water with Jesus. Any guesses as to why that's left out by Mark's account here? Do you guys remember who probably wrote the book of Mark? Remember we talked about this at the beginning that Mark was probably the guy who wrote it, John Mark. But John Mark was Peter's sort of um, trainee. 
And some even argue that Peter is the one who gave John Mark all the information, like basically told the gospel to him and John Mark wrote it down. We talked about that in the introduction to the, the gospel of Mark. So then the question is, if Peter did have a handle on this gospel more, and this is where he, the information of this comes, why would Peter leave that out? Um, I don't know, it could kind of go either way if you ask me. Was, was not to be prideful, <laughs> I, walked on the, I walked on the water with Jesus, um, so I'm just gonna leave that out. I don't want to think of them being more highly than they ought. Um, or was he embarrassed, I think. Uh, I, I said, let me go in the water and then I got my eyes off of Jesus. Maybe it was just, he was embarrassed uh, to leave it out. But, um, but uh, either way, uh, that, it is funny that they left that part out of the story in this particular gospel. But the thing we learn from Mark that we don't see as much in Matthew is why they, like the Lord calls them out in the sense of the fact that they, they saw the feeding of the 5,000, but their hearts were hardened, it says here. What an interesting declaration in verse 52. You know, um, it's, it's like we talked about, they're having the opportunity to grow in faith because um, they saw the feeding of the 5,000, but it's kind of a fail here because they don't have faith. Right after the feeding of 5,000, now they're in a storm and they're freaking out again, thinking it's a ghost and all that stuff. So keep that in mind. Uh, they had an opportunity to grow in faith, but they didn't really seem to take that. One more, we're almost done. Um, the sixth opportunity is to receive the Lord's help. And we see that in verses 53 uh, through 55, uh, 56. It says, verse 53, then it says, when they had passed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and drew to, uh, to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship, straightway they knew him and ran through that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick and they, uh, where they heard where he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. Where do you think they got the idea to touch the border of his garment? Remember the woman with the issue of blood earlier? Um, now that's become a thing. Man, if we can just touch the border, if you just touch him, you know, and, and I, I love Jesus for that because that's all you need is just a touch of Jesus. You know, the psalmist says, oh, taste and see that the Lord, he is good. And boy, once you kind of see and touch Jesus, you'll realize he's the best thing that ever happened to humanity. Um, the opportunity to receive the Lord's health was given. Now, I know it's late, but just give me a couple more minutes if you would, because let's do a quiz time. We're gonna call this pass or fail, okay? <laughs> pass or fail. Um, opportunity number one tonight was the opportunity to know Jesus, verses one through six, his old hometown, pass or fail? Fail. They rejected Jesus and said, get out of our town, we're offended by you, sad. Opportunity missed. Opportunity number two in our list of, of notes here was to share the word. The disciples were sent out two by two. Um, pass or fail? Pass. Yeah, many heard the word uh, and it says mighty works were done by the disciples. So that was a good thing. They had the opportunity to share the word. They took it and man, the Lord blessed it. Um, opportunity number three was to repent from sin. When we talked about Herod uh, Antipas and his whole wacko plan, pass or fail? Fail. Herod didn't repent, but I think you can see in the story, the Lord gave Herod Antipasta many times to repent. And he heard John the Baptist preaching to him like personally, but he still failed. That's sad. 
Uh, opportunity number four, to show compassion. Um, uh, when we're talking about the disciples showing compassion, pass or fail? Well, that was kind of a fail, remember? Send these people away so they're hungry, get them out of here. Um, but Jesus was moved with compassion. And Jesus was, I think, trying to teach them to be, be full of compassion. How do you do? Are you passing or failing on the issue of compassion? Um, opportunity number five, to grow in faith. Um, when we talk about the, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and then the storm, they had an opportunity to say, wow, we just saw Jesus feed the 5,000. Jesus told us to cross over the sea, pass or fail? Fail, because they freaked out. And the Lord said, he, I mean, these words are brutal. It says their hearts were hardened because they did not consider the miracle of the loaves. Um, to, they had an opportunity to grow in faith, but they missed that opportunity. And then lastly, opportunity to receive the Lord's help uh, by healing in verses 53 through 56. Pass or fail? Pass. They brought people all over, just even if they just touched the hem of his garment. Um, the reason I go through that little exercise of pass or fail is how you doing? Are you passing or failing in your belief, trust, compassion, all these areas, man, there's things we all need to be growing and learning in. May the Lord give us ears to hear, amen? Amen. Lord, how thankful we are. This gospel story is so powerful. And I pray that we'd appropriate these lessons, these opportunities that were given to them and the opportunities you put before us. I pray that we'd make the most of those opportunities and grow and that we would pass and not fail. So give us strength, give us wisdom. Bless these, your people tonight as we go our way. In Jesus' name, amen.